So have you ever had um, an experience that just even in the moment felt like it was going to have a profound effect on you? Like something, maybe, maybe you were brought through a period of suffering or something amazing happened, like you know, a child being born to you or something extraordinary that, that it felt like in some ways almost the clouds were parting and for the first time you were seeing something and you felt like this is going to make a difference. I've shared before how when I was in high school, uh, there was this prayer meeting that I was a part of that had just this profound effect on me in a way that I had never experienced before. I grew up in church, but I had never experienced before just the sense of the presence of God being there and, and the love of God being real, and, and it was overwhelming. And I remember in the days that followed, kind of having this one thought kind of again and again, how do I hold on to this? How do I keep hold of this way that I see, that I see truth in a way that I didn't before? How can I keep it from just kind of fading away? Because that is what happens, right? If you've had an experience like that, you know that there is there's something about who we are that just kind of gradually slides back into the way that we were. And if we're not careful, we can forget. How, how, how do we hold on to those moments where we see? I want us to understand as we're looking at this passage, we just heard it read, that that is fundamentally what this passage is about. Perhaps you noticed there's this repetition of this idea of remembering and forgetting. So even at the very beginning when it talks about the, you know, the commandment that I command you shall be careful to do, that word careful actually literally means keep, hold on to. And then verse 2, you shall remember. And if you go to verse 5, it says, know in your heart. And then 11, take care that you don't forget. And for, and 17, you know, like, or, or then 18, you shall remember the Lord your God. 19, if you forget again and again, it's like, don't forget, remember, don't forget. Moses is saying, here you are in an important moment. For the last 40 years, as we'll see, God has been shaping and teaching and helping God's people come to this moment of, of to some degree of clarity. And they're about to change and experience something new. And he's saying, don't forget. You, you have been given this gift gift. The God of the universe has made himself known to you, and you know him, and he is giving you these instructions in his word, and it is the way of life, and it is the way of joy, and if you somehow turn away from it, you will be moving towards the way of death. Hold on to this, and don't forget. Because as we know, forgetting is way easier than it should be. I mean, we, we know that even for those of us who have been Christians for a number of years, we will have certain times, seasons where something will happen, where we'll see an answer to prayer or something we will have heard and it will feel clear to us. And then the lifeness of life, you know, the, the busyness, the anxieties, the different things, the good things, the bad things, and it just kind of slowly floods to the back and, and, and we forget how do we remember? That's, that's what our passage is about. Our passage kind of looks in two directions. Moses looks backward and he says, remember the things that God taught you in the midst of suffering. 
And then he looks forward as they're about to move into the promised land and said, hold on to these things. Remember as you move into prosperity. And that's what we'll be considering. First, remember those things that God taught you in the midst of suffering. In two different places, near the beginning, starting at verse 2, and also near the end, there are these two different sections that speak of Israel's time in the wilderness. And I think it's probably helpful for us just to recognize that that time was hard. I mean, right after getting through the Red Sea, and they're now in the wilderness, we shouldn't imagine some sort of Edenic, you know, grass and rivers and everything is great. No, they are in dry and dusty lifeless, rocky desert. In fact, Moses specifically speaks of it as this great and terrifying wilderness. And, and it's not just a lack of food, it's inhospitable. It talks about these fiery serpents and scorpions, poison everywhere. And, and if you're Bear Gryllis, you know, the, the super out, you know, like the outdoorsman, that might be awesome. But when we're talking about hundreds of thousands of people, parents with infants and elderly and those who are sick, slowly making their way through it, this, this is hard. And it's not just like this kind of brief road trip where it's like, okay, we can, you know, hold on to sanity for a little while. Because of their failure, this ends up being not just one week, two weeks, not just one year, 40 years where they're just packing up camp every so often and, and moving and then plodding down their tents and no food anywhere and oftentimes no water anywhere. And that's their life for 40 years. And, and I could just imagine, I mean, knowing how sometimes in the middle of suffering, how sometimes it can just feel like, has God forgotten? Does God just not care? How that might have been a natural instinct for them. That, or even worse, because they know that this is because of their own failing. God is so angry right now. God is just taking it out on us. He is just trying to make us miserable. That is probably how they were feeling. But now Moses says, let's look back on these last 40 years. And, and you need to understand that that's not what happened. That, that actually this time in the wilderness, as hard as it was, is a time where God showed his love. So perhaps you saw that in verse 4. He's like reminding, do you remember your clothing? It, it, it didn't wear out. You were in the desert, in the dust for over 40 years, and not a hole on a single bit of cloth. How do you think that worked? Your shoes continued, your sandals continued to be in fine shape. Do you know what that was? That was God. Even as he was bringing you through this suffering, he was bringing you through it. Because here's what was going on. It wasn't God taking it out on you, trying to make you miserable. No, verse 5, know then in your heart that as a man disciplines his son, the Lord your God disciplines you. And all my life, I've never met a kid who loves being disciplined. There might be one out there, but I have not met them. And there goes, you know, I'm so glad you grounded me, Mom and Dad. I know it's for my good. But it is, right? I mean, and, and as parents, I mean, those of us who have been through it, we know, like, rarely, I mean, it should be never, but occasionally we're really angry, but rarely do we take delight in punishing them, right? Like, most of the time, as they are miserable, we feel a bit of misery in our heart, but but because we love them, we know they need to learn. They need to learn the way life is. They need to learn structure so that they can grow. It is because of love that we bring people, sometimes through, or bring our kids, sometimes through suffering, because we know that will bring them to a better place. And God's like, that's, that's what happened. I, I am your father, and I love you. And I brought you through these 40 years 
because I'm a father who trains his son. I'm, I'm teaching you something you absolutely need to know. And specifically, perhaps you notice this repeated idea first in verse 2 where he says, he did it that he might humble you. Or again in verse 3, and he humbled you. Which I think sometimes when we hear that idea of humbling, it can have almost this, this negative sense. Um, you know, like kind of like he ground you in the dirt so that you could realize what a wretch you are. But that's, that's not what humbling means in the Bible. Humility in the Bible is never this idea of, of hatred, self-hatred, or punishment. Humility in Scripture has just a really simple idea, and that is being brought out of fantasy land into reality. Being brought from a false way of seeing ourselves into seeing ourselves truthfully. Because that's actually not what comes natural to us. Uh, a few years ago, and maybe you're familiar with this, there's this meme where you had like two pictures side by side, and the first one was like, the way that you think that you look and the way you actually look. Maybe you've seen this. So like I remember one time there's one that was like running. The way you think you look when you're exercising running and you see this sleek 20-something-year-old kind of like with wind blowing his hair looking awesome. The way you actually look and you see this overweight, untucked guy with a headband who's like face is red and he's exhausted. There's a gap between sometimes how we want to be and what we actually are. Humility is necessary because there is a gap in terms of all things about how we view ourselves. We, we want to see ourselves as self-sufficient, as in control, independent. We don't need anyone else's help. We can do it our, ourselves. We want that because, honestly, life is just way easier if that's the case, right? If I don't need to ask anyone for help, if I can do it all on my own, then I can control things and I can make sure things are the way that I want it to be, and that feels safe. In fact, our entire culture has kind of lionized that entire idea of the self-made man, the person who crawled up from, from the ground to make billions of dollars. That's humanity. That's what should be. That's what we want. And that is utterly impossible. Like, that, that's the lie. That's the what you think. But, but that is just totally not what we are. If you need any further evidence that this idea of self-sufficiency, of independence, of super competence just doesn't fit us... I just want you for a moment to think about your belly button. <laughs> think about what your belly button actually signifies, that, that the very beginning of your life, you were utterly dependent on someone else for your existence. And then even after you were born, what happened? You were helpless. You were fed. Your, your diapers were changed. Ethicist uh, Stanley Hauerwas writes, Our belly buttons keep reminding us that all we have and all we are is a gift. That's our past and that's our future. If we get old enough, we will once again be dependent on others. And it's not just in those moments. Our body regularly tells you, you are limited, you are dependent. Isn't it interesting that the way that we were made is in such a way that every day we need to completely relinquish control and be completely vulnerable for sometime between six and eight hours to remind us that we are not nearly as strong as we think we are. It's not just sleep. It's, it's any time we push ourselves too hard, our body says, you shouldn't do that. If we go for a few hours without food, our body says, you need something. 
And if we try to hold our breath for a few seconds, our body says, this isn't going to work. Everything, again and again, we are told we are not self-sufficient. We can't generate our own energy. We can't do everything we need to. We are weak and limited and dependent on the world outside of us for our very existence. And when we understand that rightly, what that really means is that we are limited and dependent upon God. That in every way, we are creatures whose life and breath and hope and joy and wisdom is found in our Creator. That is who we really are. And humility is just coming to recognize that. And, and this, says God, is what I was doing with you in the wilderness. I was bringing you into reality. Specifically in verse 3, he says, Moses t- explains, He humbled you and let you hunger and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. That's often, I think, misread to say that God was teaching that it's not just physical stuff that you depend on, but it's spiritual things like the word of the Lord, God, and that, that's true, but that's not, I think, what the intent is. The intent is that rather than just thinking of as food as something that you make on your own, where you think that it's just kind of your own abilities and you can just eat bread by itself and that's just it, what, what God is teaching his people throughout these 40 years as he moves them from hunger to fed is that it is not ultimately their own doing, but it is God's hand, his decision, his word that sustains them. So here's kind of how it works. Um, I, I said, you know, like once they came out of Egypt and they're in the middle of nothing, it doesn't take long before they start going, wait a second, where's our food? How are we going to do this? And, and the next morning after they're doing that, something just really strange happens. Like this, the ground is, is covered by what is it? That, that's actually, um, the word manna, literally it is, what is it? The, the ground is, I mean, I love it, like Moses himself tries to kind of describe it in Exodus. He says, it's a um, flake-like thing that was as fine as frost on the ground in the desert. I mean, like, I don't think he even knows how to describe it. Like, no one has ever encountered it before. They don't know what it is. They've never heard of anything. No one knows now even what it's like because it's nothing like anything anyone's experienced. It is so clearly from the hand of God. And God says, here's what you do. Gather it in the morning. Gather enough for the day. You can bake it and make bread. You can boil it like rice. It will be enough to sustain you. And from that point on, for the next 40 years, that was how they lived. They could only gather enough for the day. The rest would rot, except for Friday, they could gather twice as much so that they didn't have to gather on the Sabbath. And every night, they had nothing left. Can you imagine, can you imagine what that would be like? I mean, I think it's really hard, actually, because... You know, anytime we're even hungry, all we need to do is just take something from the fridge and throw it in the microwave, or if we're not sure we like anything, we can order DoorDash. I mean, food is just constantly accessible to us, and because of that, we don't feel the fact that we are weak and that we are needy. We feel self-sufficient, but imagine if that's not how it were. Imagine if at the end of the day, there is absolutely nothing left in your cabinets, in your fridge. There is no food. And not only that, but you, you know that there is no food for miles around. And, and there is nowhere you can go to get it. 
Imagine what that would teach you just about your weakness, your dependence. And then imagine if every morning, once again, you are given the same gift of food, just enough for the day. Day after day after day, brought to an awareness of weakness and insufficiency, day after day brought to a place where you see God faithfully giving you what you need. Think of how that would form you and would teach you what you are and who your God is and how you are fundamentally a creature who depends upon God. It was not an easy time. It was a time of suffering, and yet it was a time where God brought them to see. And, and honestly, none of us have had, of course, an experience like that. If you have been through something hard, my guess is you can resonate with at least some of this. There is something about going through a time of, of weakness where where something really matters to us and it's not happening. We feel grief, we feel inadequacy, and the lies that we've tried to erect about ourselves just get kind of torn down. And we see just how weak we are, and we pray like we have never prayed before. There are ways that God in his love brings us through suffering and uses that to bring us into reality and to give us humility. I wonder if even now, as you think back on some of those do you find yourself kind of going, oh yeah, I remember, I saw that once, but I, I just I kind of have forgotten. Because that's what Moses is saying is the danger. He says, remember what you have been taught because things are about to change. Remember as you move into prosperity. That's the, the second half of our passage. Because because prosperity is what is before them. So, beginning in verse 7, here's what we see is God's intent for his people. The Lord your God is bringing you into a good land, a land of brooks, of water, of fountains and springs. You're going to have as much to drink as you'll ever need. There's a land of wheat and barley. You will never struggle to find enough to make bread, to eat vines and fig trees and pomegranates and olive oil, of, of olive trees and honey. You will have oil, you will have sweetness, you will have wine. A land in which you will eat bread without scarcity, in which you will lack nothing. A land whose stones are iron and out of whose hills you can dig copper. In other words, you will have plenty to be able to make your pots and your pans. You won't be missing a thing, which, if you think about it, is a little bit like our experience right now, right? I mean, we, we are in that place where we never have to worry about food, where we can have whatever we need. And he's saying, that, that is what I'm going to give you, Israel. And, and the key is, and you will eat and you will be satisfied. Let me just briefly note once again that any time we think that God doesn't care about our desires, that he's not interested in our joy, just see this was God's plan. God's like, I am bringing you into this land that is going to overflow so that you will be able to rejoice, and that is what I want for you. But there's a danger. Verse 11, as these things happen, take care lest you forget the Lord your God. Which is a strange thing, if you think about it. 
For 40 years, God has kept on saying, I'm going to give you this great land, this beautiful land. And it has felt impossible. They've been in the desert. There's these seven major nations that they know they can't beat. It's no way going to happen. And he says, once it happens, be worried that you don't forget. Why would you forget? Because every moment of every day, you're surrounded by reminders. Every time you eat, wow, God did it. Every time you enjoy the house that you've built, wow, look at what God has given me. Every time you're able to enjoy wealth, everything, you go, I didn't deserve this. This wasn't going to happen. It should have reminded you all the time. How could you forget? Except we know that is exactly how it works. Isn't it the case that those things that we, we once felt were so clear to us in the moment of difficulty just kind of fade into the haze as things get easier? Why? Well, verse 14 ex- clarifies a little bit about why, why that me- might be. It says that when you enjoy these things, when your herds and flocks multiply, your silver and gold is multiplied, and all that you have is multiplied, then watch out that your heart will be lifted up and you forget the Lord your God. Your heart be lifted up. This is the same idea that when Paul later on says that you should not view yourself more highly than, you're, than you ought. He's saying, watch out that, that as you experience all these things, you will view yourself more highly than you should. Because, you know, when we no longer experience need, we can start kind of, we can start believing the lie, right? If I, if I don't have issues of hunger, if I have everything I need, I can start thinking, I'm, I'm pretty much in control and I'm self-sufficient, He takes it even beyond that in verse 17, Beware, lest you say in your heart, My power and the might of my hand have gotten me this wealth. When I was in seminary, I I wasn't able to buy many books because I was in Australia and I knew I'd have to bring them back. But I had friends who bought loads and loads and loads of books. And like, seeing the number of books they bought, I'm like, there's no way you're ever going to read all of that. And and, and at least one of them acknowledged, honestly, you know what, I know I'm not going to read all that, but when I buy them, I feel smarter. Just kind of like owning the books in my library, I can always look if I need to, and, and just having that access makes me feel more brilliant. There's an element that God is saying that that same thing will happen. As you step into the land, and then you have these houses, and then you have this wealth, all of these things, you will look around, and you will be tempted to let these be kind of like referenda, like scorekeepers of how great you are. If you were with us in the book of Daniel, you might remember Nebuchadnezzar did that. He looked at the city of Babylon and was like, look at this great city that I have made. And, and, and God is saying that's going to be the temptation, that, that when you look at all of these things, rather than going, how in the world did all of this happen? How in the world did I get all of this? God is so good to say, how in the world did I get all of this? Pretty awesome. Which if we know this story, we know how utterly absurd it is. And yet, don't we do the same thing? What do you have that was not given to you? I mean, we we sometimes can kind of take pride in our talents, our gifts, our abilities, but we didn't give our own DNA. We didn't give us our parents. We didn't choose that. 
We were given so many opportunities. Going to college, you know, the college, that's other people who have taught us and trained us. The work that we have, so many things were given. I mean, there is not a single thing that we have that was not either a gift because it was given to us by parents or this world with the food or that kind of thing, or given to us in terms of our own abilities. Everything we have comes from outside of us, and yet what do we do when we feel like we have something good? Look at my family. Boy, I'm pretty great. Or, or look at my job and my wealth. Boy, doesn't that show that I have succeeded? We have this tendency when we look around all of these gifts to say, man, I'm kind of a big deal. And it's just, it's deranged, right? It's, it's the opposite. I mean, it is going back to that story that we're wanting to hold on to, that we're in control. And it, it is living in fantasy land. But it's, it's more than that. It's not just some sort of kind of benign confusion. Verse 14, again, notice what it says, that when that happens, when you, your heart be lifted up, you don't just forget what God taught you. You forget the Lord your God. Because here's why. If we are trying to perpetuate this lie that we are self-sufficient, that we are in control, do you know the one person who absolutely needs to be removed from that equation? It's God. Because every time we actually pay attention to who God is and think about him, we are reminded of how small we are and how dependent we are and how not in control we are. So the easiest way for us to be able to live that lie is to keep God at arm's length, this kind of deistic God is somewhere in the distance but not involved in all. We forget the real God. And when we forget, because of our prosperity, the real God, everything gets out of joint. It affects the way we are with each other. I mean, this is obvious if you think about it. What do you think is better in terms of relations to others? If, if I have this sense that, wow, everything I have is a gift, I don't deserve any of this, or if I'm entitled to all of this, and if you don't have the things that I do, you clearly have failed in some way. And when we think ourselves in this way, there's judgmentalism, and there's not generosity. And, and when we forget, it also just does a number on ourselves. Soren Kierkegaard said that despair comes when we refuse to accept the reality of what we are. There's this internal division where we try to pretend we are something other than what we are, and that always leads to depression and despair, and it also leads to just a lack of joy. I mean, the way that we're actually able truly to enjoy these things that are surrounding us when we walk outdoors and we see the beauty of the world is with gratitude. Gratitude is how you savor. And gratitude is only possible when we realize, I didn't deserve any of this. All of this comes from God. We're told here, remember. Israel, remember what God has shown you, even when things go well. Trinity, remember, even in the midst of prosperity, the reality of who you are. I think I wonder if, if one of the reasons that we struggle to hold on to this is because we have in our minds locked in this wrong vision of what mature humanity is supposed to be. That we think kind of someone who is truly strong, truly mature, truly like the full realization of humanity is, you know, the, the lone wolf marble man or someone who is completely in control, self-sufficient, needs no one's help. All you need to do to realize how much of a lie that is is to think about Jesus, the one fully human being who has ever lived in this world, the one who is stronger than we possibly can imagine, who, who never was threatened by anyone else, and yet, what do we see 
We see someone who says, I only do whatever the Father tells me. I only, I only say whatever the Father has taught me. I'm completely dependent on God. When, when he goes to the cross, he doesn't go, I'm going to steal will my way through it. No, what does he do? In tears, he falls down before God, remembering he is a human being who needs his Father to help him and prays again and again. And when he is on the cross at the very end in his his weakness as a human being, what does he do? He says, Lord, into your hands I commit my spirit. He remembers and he trusts and he depends upon God. That's what it looks like to be a human being. And we're told that this risen Christ, as he gives us his spirit, he gives us in the spirit the same capacity to remember. We're told Jesus tells his disciples that the Spirit, when I give you the Spirit, he will bring to mind the things that I have taught you. And, and Paul elsewhere says that the Spirit, as, as believers trust in Jesus, the Spirit cries out in our hearts, Abba, Father, reminding us of what we've forgotten, that we have a God who loves us that we can call Father. The Spirit is present in us, and he will not let you forget. There will be times that we will try to forget, and suddenly we'll have this uncomfortable awareness as the Spirit says, no, don't forget, this is who you are. This is true. And, and our calling is to walk in step with the Spirit, to allow the Spirit to be our reminder, and, and to take hold of the practices that we are given that are meant to help us to remember as we depend on God. These practices are ones that that I think many of us already are participating in in many different ways. But as I conclude, just really quickly, let me just share, as we are people who are called to remember, here are three things that I think that we need to do to be those who remember. First, in dependence on the Spirit, we need to be people who ask God in dependence repeatedly. In other words, we need to pray. I think sometimes we have this sense that... Um, that some things are the big things that we should ask God for, and some things are the small things that we shouldn't trouble God with. And that is exactly wrong. And do you know why? When we're saying, we're saying, there's some things, God, you can do, but there's some things I've got on my own. That's totally not the way we're meant to be. Whatever we find overwhelming, whether small or big, repeatedly, daily, turn to God in prayer and teach yourself the reality of who you are. Second, we need to have consistent rituals of gratitude. That is, times in our day throughout the week where we're able to look back and say, look at what God has done. I found for me the end of the day is the best time for this. But this habit of, of looking and considering all of the good things that have happened and giving thanks to God and remembering, God, I deserve none of this. Thank you. And finally, I think God gives us this. This is part of our way of remembering. Whenever we come together on Sunday morning, we are meant to encourage each other. We are meant to remember together that my one hope in life and death is that I'm not my own, but I belong to Jesus. When we pray together, we're being taught again the posture of humility and dependence. When we go to the table in just a moment's time, we are doing this to remember. We, we come together to help each other to remember. 